You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Welcome, you're listening to Metamorphosis, a podcast where we interview physicians from across BC and Canada with the aim of helping medical students navigate their medical careers. I'm Iman, and today we're joined by Dr. Gerald DeRosa, a nephrologist working at Royal Columbian Hospital. He is the head of medicine at Royal Columbian Hospital, as well as division head of Fraser Health Nephrology and the director of the clinical teaching unit at the Royal Columbian Hospital. Welcome, Dr. DeRosa, and thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, so I always like to start just by asking um, what kind of led you to medicine? What was your path prior to medical school? Um, did you always know you wanted to be a doctor? Kind of how did you find that out for yourself? So, you know, I, I had a, an inkling that I wanted to be a doctor since I was really young, like seven. And so my dad would say it's because my mom brainwashed me, is typical Asian family. Um, but, you know, I, I was good at math and science. And um, I also had to have an operation. I had this very strange growth. Uh, under my toenail and interestingly they they actually had to remove it and remove the entire toenail because it was a risk to turn into a melanoma later on and so I was very kind of frightened going to an operation at the age of seven and I was in my class one of my classmates fathers uh, was a vascular surgeon Peter Fry and uh, he worked out in Vancouver and UBC and he was nice enough to kind of give me a tour of the hospital before um, I went in for the surgery. And so not that it was a big surgery thing, but I think when you're a kid, <laughs> you're just like, you know, very worried about this whole yeah. thing. So, um, and so Dr. Fry took me in and, and I think like, I was just fascinated by the whole hospital and, you know, how you could help people and, you know, do great things. And so I think that's where my initial interest, um, kind of started and then I think, you know, when you are one of those students who are, who's good at math and science and those sort of things, and you enjoy those subjects, I think you naturally gravitate to the idea of thinking about medicine. Um, you know, I had backup plans in university and stuff, but um, I always was thinking, okay, I might want to do medicine. So um, in undergrad, I actually did a slightly unusual path for most people. I did mathematics, statistics, combined honors. Um, and I, I kind of did that because a, I thought math would be, you know, math and six were easy and they have the right answer all the time, which is not fundamentally true when it gets hard. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then, um, I also thought, you know, from a backup point of view, if I didn't get into medicine, you know, something like biostatistics, actuary, things like that were very interesting subjects. Um, what I found about medicine medicine, and what I found frustrating about mathematics statistics was just like I was trying to solve all these fascinating problems, but like they didn't have any real practical application um, when it was mathematics, you know, dimensional, infinite dimensional spaces and integrating things over things. And um, it was very challenging, but it just didn't like I couldn't translate into reality. Right. And so. The thing I love about what I do now is, is uh, as an internist, I still solve problems, but I get to solve problems for patients, for an individual mm -hmm. patient or their families. And kind of, I can see a direct correlation between like solving the problem and making the, the patient feel better. Right. And so mm -hmm. I really enjoy seeing that aspect of things. Um, but I still love that problem solving. So. 
I love that story. I love stories that start with kind of kids who are exposed to the medical field and then it kind of sticks with you. It shows kind of the impact of it starting at a young age and how much that matters. And then when you did settle, um, you know, you went to medical school, you got in, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do, especially coming from this background where it's, you know, not as conventional? Yeah, it's very interesting because, I, you know, I talk about this sometimes because at Royal Columbia, we also talk about um, career choices and we actually have a session once a month where we talk about choosing a career. And, you know, I explain to people, I, I changed my path multiple times and, and I encourage people to, to really, you know, not be completely fixated on one idea, but to kind of, you know, have a sense of themselves. And what I mean by that is, you know, when I started, I, I had actually done some research in statistics as an undergrad. And so I had done some student projects uh, with the cancer agency and I had worked on uh, lung cancer incidents, risk factors, projecting how long, you know, it takes from your smoking history to when you uh, get lung cancer. And so some of that early data that came out um, many, many years ago that showed that correlation, I had helped, um, in a very small part <laughs> in uh, like I did a little segment of the work, but um, I had helped doing that research. So I kind of thought I was going to be an oncologist who does, you know, biostatistics and I had this all full plan. Right. So, um, so I thought, well, radiation oncology makes a lot of sense. You know, it's physics. I, I mm -hmm. like science a lot and I liked cancer because of my previous experience myself with the possibility of getting skin cancer. And then I liked the statistics of it and the cancer agency does a lot of um, research. And so I kind of, my path when I was like a third year medical student and second year medical student was radiation oncology. Um, and then a, probably a master's and PhD in, in, in epidemiology. And uh, so, you know, one of the things I always encourage people is to try and get these experiences early to actually see if you enjoy them. So I was fortunate enough to actually get a research project in radiation oncology um, when I was a, a third year medical student. And, uh, you know, the project itself was not really relevant. We were just radiating mouse glands and stuff like that. But, you know, one of the nice things was the radiation oncologist, Dr. Morris at the time, really nice guy. Um, he said, look, I'll, I'll bring you along to my, you know, my clinic sometimes, you know, you can get some clinical experience and, you know, um, a, a lot of times your mentors will do that, right? They'll work on the research project with you and then they'll kind of show you what they do clinically as well if they're clinicians. And I thought that was very valuable. So I followed along and, uh, you know, went to his clinic sometimes, you know, observed him for different days, uh, kind of shadowed him, so to speak. I wasn't, you know, as a second slash, I was in between second, third year as a medical student between second, third year, you're not really allowed to kind of do direct patient care on your own. So, um, and it was really interesting because, you know, he really loved his job. I mean, which was great, right? It was really nice to see someone who loved his job. Um, but as I was following along, you know, I would ask him, okay, so you know, what, like, how do you get your referrals? Right. And he'd say, Oh, well, the referrals come through the cancer agency. Right. And, and so I'm like, well, how, do you have to figure out if they have a certain type of cancer? And he's like, no, it's fantastic. Like everyone has that I see has already been diagnosed with lung cancer or prostate cancer. Right. So he already knows what they have and he's essentially planning their therapy with the physicist and stuff like that. Right. So 
his days were fairly um, predictable, right? You know, he had clinics on certain days, he had planning therapy on other days, he had follow-up clinics after radiation, and he always saw lung and prostate because at the, at the cancer, and so you kind of specialize in a couple of cancers um, to get really good at it, right? And, and he loved, you know, knowing what he was going to see, the predictability of the day, you know, the infrastructure and all that. Um, but the thing that I, I recognized that I might miss in that sort of job is just the mystery, you know, um, the solving the problem, which I, I think was kind of the original um, reason why I wanted to go into medicine was just to challenge myself. And, and not that, that, that it, not that it's not challenging to do radiation oncology or anything like that. It's just a different set of challenges, right? And so, um, so I kind of thought, you know, I liked it, but I, it didn't really kind of grab my attention, right? It didn't really excite me okay. the way I felt it should if I really wanted to, if I really enjoyed something. So, um, so it kind of put me, I kind of paused and then I was like, hmm, I'm not sure exactly what I should do at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, I, I kind of went back and I thought, okay, I'm missing the mystery. So what kind of specialties do you have to solve problems, right? And so kind of naturally, I thought about things like neurology, internal medicine, pediatrics, um, you know, those sort of specialties, right? I, I knew I wasn't very good with my hands. And uh, so I didn't think I wanted to be a surgeon. Um, and I, I wasn't really keen to deliver babies for whatever reason. I just kind of knew mentally that that I wouldn't want that kind of practice. So I kind of had ruled out a couple things. Now, when I went through the UBC program, it was interesting. Our third year was like 16 months. And so our core actually ended after CARMS applications. And so you had to, um, you had to actually decide on something that you didn't want to do completely, like a core rotation of sorts, right? So like, Mm -hmm. for example, I was pretty sure I didn't want to do obstetrics and gynecology. um, So I put that at the end because you couldn't even apply for it, right? Um, So it was very strange and the electives were kind of interspersed through the year. Um, So I actually had electives before I had my core rotations. Um, Yeah, I mean, they've subsequently changed that, I think, because it didn't really make a lot of sense. (laughs) But what you guys do now makes a lot more sense, right? You do your base core and then you do your electives after that. But it was it was really interesting because then I, I had these electives coming up and I'm like, I'm not sure what to do in them. So I went to talk to the chief resident at Vancouver General Hospital. His name was Steve Wong, and he still practices there. Um, And, you know, this is once again something I encourage people to do is, you know, people don't mind, you know, the chief resident at a site, the, you know, some attendings, things like that, answering questions for medical students, you know, because we've all been through this, right? We've all been through this search to do the right thing, and we all want people to make the right choice. So if someone emails me or says, you know, can I chat with you? You know, I'm very happy to do so. And. And certainly for internal medicine, the chief residents in British Columbia at the at the three main sites, they're great resources, right? So I went and talked to Steve and, and Steve said, well, if you want to get an exposure to internal medicine and you want to prepare for your CT rotation, he said, I would advise you to do nephrology and hematology because he said, everyone is anemic. You know, it seems like when you do CTU and, and he said, he said, everyone has some sort of kidney problem, right? Mm-hmm. So he's like, if you have that as a base, you know, um, and he said, those are kind of the, some of the trickier, you know, parts of internal medicine, you know, 
it's reputed that, you know, with hematology of like the coagulation cascade and very, you know, and things like that. And with, you know, nephrology of fluids, electrolytes and glomerulonephritis and things that we like to confuse people about. So, mm-hmm. um, so I said, okay, well, that, that's what I'm going to do. So, um, so I did uh, hematology at VGH, which I really enjoyed. I thought it was great. Um, and then I did nephrology at St. Paul's and, uh, and I was lucky enough to get hit by the lightning bolt. It's, it's very hard to describe, but I tell, I tell students and residents and everyone, like, sometimes you just, you do something and you just know that's what you want to do. And if you're lucky enough to get hit by the lightning bolt, then, you know, it's, it's, it's great in a way. Right. And so I did nephrology at St. Paul's and I absolutely loved it. Um, you know, I love the numbers. I'm a, you know, with the math statistics, I'm a very objective person. So for me, having numbers that you can base things off of, like the kidney function, the potassium level, the sodium, and then manipulate, you know, the, the treatment plan. And then, you know, you test the next day and you can see if, if your numbers improved, right? So for me, it was very satisfying. You know, I like the intellectual kind of rigor of nephrology, um, I like the different things you can do. There's like transplant, there's dialysis, there's, you know, just run of the mill kidney failure that you're trying to manage. Right. And so, you know, um, and, uh, and I think, you know, part of it too, was I had a really good time there. Um, I worked really hard and the preceptors I had, including my mentor, who's even my mentor to this day, David Landsberg, you know, they were very encouraging. Um, and so, you know, after I finished that, I was like, I'm going to be a nephrologist. <laughs> so um, now you do have to be careful, right? Because you, you have to think about, you know, um, did I just have a good time because, you know, the attendings were nice to me. It was a great environment, uh, you know, and they're encouraging me to do it. And so now I feel like I want to do it. Right. So, <laughs> you know, I do always tell people you have to get more experience to make sure. And I, I definitely tried to get more experience. So, even before I went to internal medicine or decided I, I had this lightning bolt, but I was like, I, I have to make sure that I don't mm-hmm. want to do anything else. Right. So I did pursue pediatrics um, because I thought, you know, it's kind of very similar to internal medicine, just a different mm-hmm. population. Right. And uh, I did infectious disease pediatrics uh, and another elective in pediatrics plus my, my pediatric um, core. Um, and I realized that, I'm not very good at like handling kids who cry. It actually makes me very upset. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, and you know, my wife will say I'm a softie at home. I'm not very good with my own kids that cry. I usually <laughs> let them get what they want. But, um, you know, I, it, there's these indelible things that occur through, um, through clerkship or your training and you have to listen to your heart. Right. And so, I remember I was doing pediatric infectious disease. There was this poor young boy. I think he must have been like six or seven. And he had been attacked by a dog. And so the dog had kind of torn up his scalp. And so he had this um, multi-bacterial infection that was very hard um, to treat, right? And so, you know, as the infectious disease doctors, we had to go in every day or two and kind of examine the wound, right? And, uh, and the poor guy, right? Like you would, you, the minute I walked in the door, the kid just started screaming, 
right? Because he knew like you were going to have to unwrap the bandages and as careful as you are, I mean, it's still going to hurt, right? Mm -hmm. And then he's not sure, are you the one who's going to, you know, debride or you do, you know, what are you going to do? And he just screamed and screamed and cried and, you know, and, and, you know, his parents are trying to cajole him and you're trying to be nice and try to, but it's, it's hard, right? I mean, fundamentally, you are going to cause him some discomfort and pain, right? And so, you know, I, I just couldn't I didn't have the stomach for it. I was like, I can't do this. Um, you know, whereas I think like for me, if, if I have to say, put a dialysis line in an adult patient or do a procedure on them, you know, in a general sense, like I can talk to them and say, hey, like, you know, I need to do this. You know, this may cause some discomfort. I'll numb the area, but it, there might be some sharp pain. There might be just some discomfort. Even after I put it in, it's going to hurt for about a week to 10 days. But, you know, if, if we don't do dialysis, you know, I, you may not survive, right? And so I think for me, it, it the ability to explain it to the patient, get the patient consent directly and have them understand what I'm doing, I, I felt more comfortable with it. I mean, that being said, I have colleagues who do pediatrics and, and they love it, right? And, and kids are so resilient, they get better so quickly sometimes and stuff that, you know, I'm sure they're, it's just, I couldn't get over that one aspect of things. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that kind of convinced me to do more adult medicine, internal medicine, stuff like mm-hmm. that. So, and then the nice thing with internal medicine is, you know, even though I, I kind of had a sense that I wanted to do nephrology, you still have the core training and there's so many opportunities to do all these other things. And, you know, internal medicine is great in that way. And that like, I always sit down with internal medicine residents in first year and I say, you know, there, I split internal medicine into kind of like three big pools. Okay. So there, there's office-based specialties in internal medicine, right? So there's the, uh, rheumatology, the endocrinology, the allergy, immunology, the medical oncology, those are generally office-based, um, and not a lot of hospital work necessarily. I'm kind of generalizing, but a large portion of their practice is outpatient. The nice thing about that is most of those specialties have less weekends, less evening call, less having to come in at two o'clock in the morning and do things like that, right? And so um, so I think it's nice to have a subset of internal medicine where people can choose that. And, you know, it's, it's really good for the people that enjoy it because from a work-life balance point of view, it's probably more conducive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you move to the other end of the spectrum and, and people would say the more intense internal medicine specialties with kind of procedures and stuff might be the ICU, the GI, the cardiology, you know, where, you know, if you're doing a hospital-based specialty like that, um, you know, there's probably a decent amount of call. There's probably a decent amount of weekends and evenings for GI, you know, you're scoping people for ICU or tubing people when they're really sick, you know, stuff like that. So, and probably less outpatient, but, you know, there is still a fair amount of outpatient for like cardiology and GI and stuff. and then you kind of have specialties in the middle. So that's where I kind of put like hematology, nephrology, respiratory, um, infectious disease, where you kind of have office-based, you have hospital-based, you might have a procedure if you're in respiratory or nephrology, but you know, it doesn't kind of dominate what you're doing. Um, and it's kind of in the middle between the two, right? And so I always tell people to kind of, if they can't, uh, if they don't know what they like right away, like the material, they can also think about like how they view their life intersecting with work, right? And, uh, and you know, some people are kind of very fixated on the work and, you know, the work's got to be the, the most 
not the most important thing, but like they've got to really enjoy the work. Whereas some people are kind of more flexible. They're like, well, I want it to work with, you know, my life and, and, you know, if I'm going to have a family, my family time and all that sort of stuff. Right. So um, I do like that in internal medicine um, that you have that opportunity to have a little bit more time and you get to try things. So, Mm -hmm. so like, you know, even before, as I was trying to decide on nephrology, Actually, as a fourth-year medical student, I did an elective at Harvard um, just to kind of – I did nephrology at, at, uh, at the Mass General just just to go to a different country, you know, just get out of Canada, and also just to see how they do nephrology in another place, right? And so that was a different experience. Um, and then, you know, as I did core, I also did nephrology, you know, at VGH, at St. Paul's. Um, but then I did hematology, I did respiratory, I did GI, I rotated through everything just to give it a good try, right? And and every time I kind of gravitated, pulled back to uh, to nephrology, right? Though I, I would have to say hematology was very close. And I think if I wasn't a nephrologist, I, I'd probably be a hematologist. They're, they're pretty similar with their numbers and, you know, and, and things like that. So... Um, so yeah, so so and even I think I was I was chief resident at St. Paul's and and everyone would always tease me that you know we'd do a case and kind of it always come back to mentioning the kidney even if it was totally unrelated, <laughs> yeah. totally related to start. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. so so you know I think people kind of knew at that point that I that I wanted to be a nephrologist and I had kind of solidified that through the years and I was I was mm-hmm. I was quite certain. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And like you said, you just outlined one of the strengths of internal medicine is it does give you the opportunity to be exposed to different things before, you know, having to make that decision. And would you say, because I know people are curious about this when they're going through their like third, fourth year, if they feel like they're nearing fourth year, and they're not super sure yet. So they do, you know, electives in various areas, would you say that that's um, not necessarily a hindrance if they're still trying to figure things out, kind of similar. I know it was different when you were going through, but um, that they should still, you know, follow that path of figuring out what they're trying to do, or should they be narrowing it down a bit earlier? You know, it, it's such a challenge, that balance that you've that you've highlighted, right? Because everyone, you know, I still remember, I try and remember as a medical student resident, right? There's always that pressure to do like four electives in this thing. And, you know, so you're the most competitive, right? But I think like the the tough part about that is that you might have premature closure of something else that you might enjoy. And so it, like I always say, it's a long road in medicine and you want to make sure you made the right choice. Right. And so ideally, you do want to expose yourself to a variety of things until you until you really know. Right. Once you know, then, yes, you can hone it down. The only ones the only ones where I think it becomes very tricky, though, are like there are some specialties, obviously, where they're hyper competitive. Right. Mm -hmm. And back in my day, I, I don't know how the situation is nowadays, but back in my day, like plastic surgery, um, dermatology, right? Like they, they had very limited spots even across the country. And the feeling was that if ophthalmology, you know, if you really wanted to do those things, you really had to do, a, you know, a bunch of electives in them to get reference letters and to be competitive for, for CARMS, right? Um, I think some of the other things like, you know, certainly I, I participate in the interview process for internal medicine, 
uh, for carms, right? And I don't necessarily count it against someone that they tried a few other things too, right? Because I would rather they made the right decision. So you do want them to do a few, you know, internal medicine electives to show that they enjoy internal medicine. It's kind of weird if they do everything in one specialty and then suddenly they tell you they're doing internal medicine. You're like, well, why didn't you do any internal medicine? But like, it's not uncommon for someone to explore family practice internal medicine, anesthesia internal medicine, you know, things like that. And maybe some people hold that against them, but I, I think the majority of us don't, right? Like, you know, making that decision is, is not easy for a lot of people. And so I would rather someone explores it. And then during the interview or in your letter, you can explain, right? Like I tried a bunch of things just to see. And, you know, I actually decided, you know, after this broadened experience that I really liked internal medicine for these reasons, right? And I think to me, as long as someone can explain why they really want to do internal medicine, it doesn't matter as much like how they got there, right? I mean, you will have some people who kind of came to internal medicine at the very end of their, you know, they put it at the end of their clerkship, right? And then they realize they really like it and they have to try and rejiggle their electives, but they can't now because like people have already mm-hmm. done their electives so they can get a few internal medicine. And I had one student say that to me one time. They said, you know, like, a, it's going to look like I don't want to do internal medicine because I only got a few electives. I was only able to move into a few electives. And I said, mm-hmm. you just have to be honest, right? You just have to tell people like you originally thought you didn't want to do it. You put it at the end, you realized you really love it. And so you tried to rearrange a few things and then just let your passion shine through, right? And so um, so I, I, I still think the priority, and I hope this doesn't sound naive, is to, is to figure out what you want to do than, than to try and optimize your, your application, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, just, I just think, you know, you, you see very many people and it's a long career, right? Like once you choose a path, like you're doing that for the next, 30 to 40 years. So you just, you definitely want to make sure that you're, you enjoy what you're doing. Yeah. That's very humanizing also just to, cause the cars process, I guess, can for us be such a black box. And so it's helpful to remember there's people on the other side who maybe understand, you know, what you're going through. And I think so. I think most of us are reasonable people, you know, and, and for me, I think, you know, when I do the interviews, I, you know, I want to make sure that because the core residency for internal medicine and many of the residency programs, the training's pretty tough, you know, it's draining, right? It's, it's, and, and so I think that the people who have the energy to get through it are the ones who actually enjoy it, right? Mm-hmm. Cause you know, and I think if you make the wrong choice and then you're doing residency, it's pretty tough because the hours and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, um, I do think that the majority of people are just trying to make sure that someone's making the right choice initially yeah um at the end of the day um but you know i think depending on the institution and where they are they some places might be a little bit more like rigorous about it i i do think the nice thing about internal medicine to a certain degree is that there are generally a fair amount of spots across the country so as long as you're willing to be flexible as to where you go um then it's not like it's one of those hyper competitive specialties that we talked about before so And speaking for internal medicine, also on that note, um, for yourself, you kind of had that inclination towards nephrology pretty early on. Um, Would you say what you've seen, you know, with residents going through, do people kind of find their way? Is that more common or is it common to, you know, before you embark on internal medicine residency, you should know or have an idea? 
No, no, I don't think so. I mean, I would say, because, you know, when I do evaluations with the internal medicine residents, when they do their CTU, I, I always sit down and ask them, what's their plans? What's their career plans, right? And I, I would say probably half of them have an inkling of what they want to do and half of them have no clue when they start out, right? So it's okay to have no clue. Absolutely, right? Um, and so then I do that kind of speech with them about the different pots of internal <laughs> medicine. If they have no clue, if they have a clue, I just, you know, I ask them why and I, you know, see if they're on track with, you know, the, the kind of CARMS application process. Um, what I generally encourage people to do, like if someone were to embark internal medicine is to, um, you have to probably narrow it down to like two things by second year. Um, because it does, there is another CARMS process and you can't really right. kind of apply to three, four things. Right. So, yeah. you know, you, so I encourage people to try and get a broad experience in first year, um, so that, that when they pick their electives in April, May for the second year, then they can kind of narrow it down to a couple of things. Um, and I think then you have the people that know they want to do something or fall in love with something. And then you have the people that are still doing the process of elimination. Right. And um, one of the other advantages of internal medicine is that there is there is now um, a lot of people are doing general internal medicine. OK. And so you'll get a resident that comes and says, you know, I don't like any one thing more than anything else. Right. I kind of love all aspects of internal medicine. And you're like, well, that's great. You could be a general internist. Right. And um, and it, a general internal medicine is highly sought after right now in, in British Columbia and throughout Canada, actually. So very employable. And the job for a general entrance is very flexible. Um, and so you can kind of tailor it to what you want to do. So, and what I mean by that is, you know, we have general internists that work in an academic center. So those would be the CTU attendings that a lot of students see, and they do a lot of CTU and a lot of teaching clinics, right? But they don't do a lot of other, um, they, that's kind of the focus of their work. And those are the ones you're probably going to expose to more often if you're doing um, at the main teaching centers. Now, a general internist in a clinical teaching unit is very different from a general internist who works at a community hospital. A general internist in a community hospital, for example, I'll just say, let's say Ridge Meadows, one of the hospitals in Fraser Health, right? There is no ICU. Uh, in, there are no intensivists at Ridge Meadows, and there's only one cardiologist. So the general internists do a lot of um, higher acuity work. So they have their ICU there that's run by general internists. So they will intubate patients. They will do pacemaker, you know, temporary pacemakers. They will look after very ill patients, you know, that need monitors. They'll do a lot of cardiology work, um, you know, treadmills, stress tests, things like that. So very different from if you were working at, you know, my hospital, Royal Columbian, where there are cardiologists, intensivists, things like that, right? So you could be a general internist and, and, and you could do like a lot of in ICU cardiology type work without having to do an ICU cardiology fellowship. Um, there are some general internists that work just in an office and they kind of pick a niche like, you know, they like managing diabetes or they like managing cardiac disease and stuff like that. And they do office-based general internal medicine. Um, and then of course there's general internists who develop kind of an expertise. So you know, we have general internists that do obstetrical medicine that work at women's hospital. Uh, we have uh, internists at St. Paul's that do thrombosis. We have internists that do perioperative medicine. So 
Um, I probably missed a few things, but um, but the nice thing is like there's some inherent flexibility there um, with your job, right? And so that's the nice thing about uh, about it. Like you don't necessarily have to decide that you want to do a subspecialty in trauma medicine. Um, you could do general internal medicine and then have a varied practice and just pick a community that you like in a hospital that you like and do the work there, right? And so um, a lot of our trainees end up doing that now and, and they're fantastic. So, and they're very happy with their lives, right? That's awesome. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's way more vast, um, as you mentioned, because I guess a lot of us get exposed to through CTU. So we kind mm-hmm. of think of it as just being that. Um, but that sounds very variable and vast, which is great for people. Yeah. I always tell people if you do CTU and you and you at least enjoy it, um, <laughs> then you should think about internal medicine because it's not really reflective of what the majority of internists do, right? I mean, even as a nephrologist, if you think about it, I mean, I actually do attend on CTU uh, a little bit because I am the CTU director still, but the majority of nephrologists in British Columbia do not do CTU, right? They do not do general medicine. So the majority of them do office and then internal medicine and then nephrology consult service and things like that. And so, um, so you don't like students don't see that aspect of things, right? Um, they see the the busy inpatient CTU where these patients, you know, they're on one and four, you're on call overnight, and then these patients are quite sick and complex, right? But there's, there's a whole nother world for internal medicine. So then I encourage people definitely to try and do, you know, sometimes people will come to me and say, should I do three more CTU rotations to try and get into internal medicine? I say, God, no, don't, don't do that. Please. Like, first of all, you'll burn yourself out, yeah. right? And if you're going to go into internal medicine, you're going to be doing a lot of CTUs. So you don't really need to do three more CTUs, right? Mm-hmm. And so probably, I mean, and I'm not the final arbiter of making the, I, this is just the advice I give people. I say, mm-hmm. maybe do one more CTU, right? As a fourth year clerk, because you know, your, your or fourth year MSI, I think you might change the name between clerk and MSI, but as a fourth year student, do one more CTU somewhere, um, you know, because then you could potentially work with someone in the program, who, you know, reference letters and things like that and get another exposure to CTU to make sure you like it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I say, try and do a subspecialty. Yeah, there's a lot of subspecialty opportunities um, for, for students, um, both, you know, locally and then, you know, maybe even smaller communities, they also have uh, subspecialty electives and it's really good to kind of see that slice of things and then talk to those preceptors on the subspecialty and say oh what do you like about subspecialty you know what you know um, and and get that slice of what it's like to be in an office or what it's like to do a specific um, subject you know um, you know like for 90 percent of your job right so um, so I always encourage people get a uh, a you know, variety of exposures, yeah, to make that decision since CTU is not really always reflective of what you're going to be at the end of the day, so. Right, yeah, that's great advice um, for people, you know, just to see what's out there, especially within the realm of internal. Um, and then speaking of subspecialties, so focusing a bit on nephrology, um, what would you say is kind of like for people who don't know, like what a nephrologist does day to day, bread and butter that you tend to see? Interestingly, it does depend where you work and where you do nephrology. So, um, you know, what I would differentiate is that um, 
there's what a general nephrologist does and what an academic nephrologist does. Okay, so if, if people work with an academic nephrologist, they may have a specific area that they specialize in, even within nephrology, like kind of sub-sub-specialize, right? And so different people at, say, Vancouver General or St. Paul's Hospital, um, they might, you know, spend most of their time doing peritoneal dialysis or transplant or, you know, and, and not necessarily do all the activities of a nephrologist. Um, but I think it, it, short of the, those academic centers where you can sub-sub-specialize, I would say the majority of nephrologists in the province then are, are what we call general nephrologists, okay? And what that means is that um, you, you basically have hospital work and, com and outpatient community work, okay? So the community work is, you know, seeing referrals from family doctors mainly, but also endocrinologists, cardiologists, other specialists about people with kidney problems, right? And so the majority will be kidney impairment, chronic kidney disease, people who you're trying to prevent their kidneys from deteriorating further, or if they continue to deteriorate, you have to start preparing them for dialysis or kidney transplant. So you're going to see a lot of that. Um, you may see the weird and wonderful things as well that um, that people get really excited about in nephrology. Sometimes they're afraid about. So you, you'll see like glomerulonephritis. You'll see like autoimmune kidney diseases. Um, you'll see weird fluid and electrolyte problems like persistent hypokalemia and things like that. Um, so you always get these interesting cases in the office, but the majority bread and butter um, and I really do encourage people to understand what the bread and butter for things are is, is, is you know, chronic kidney disease. Yeah. Um, so you'd have an office practice and then basically then you'll have patients who then end up in a kidney clinic because you're preparing them for dialysis or they end up on dialysis. So then most nephrologists would also spend time in the dialysis unit to look after dialysis patients. Um, they would also have a peritoneal dialysis clinic to see the patients who are dialyzing at home. Um, and then some of us also do like a transplant clinic. So some of us have done a little bit of extra training transplant or we just enjoy transplant. And so we have a transplant clinic in Surrey where we see patients post-transplant. Um, and then of course we have the nephrology consult service in the hospital. So every week me or one of my colleagues is assigned to the hospital. And then we get all these consults about patients who similarly have kidney failure, might need dialysis urgently, you know, have a fluid and electrolyte problem, things like that, you know, nephrotic syndrome, and then we'll go and do a mm -hmm. consult and organize dialysis, kidney biopsy, change their therapy, try and fix their kidneys, you know, things like that. That would probably be the busiest part, you know, is, is those weeks, right? And so depending where you work, you know, like I'll just tell you how mine breaks down. I do like 10 weeks of consult nephrology in a year. I do 10 weeks of dialysis unit in a year. Um, and then the other weeks are for kind of outpatient work. So, you know, I do offices and clinics and things like that. Um, as I mentioned before, I, I do some CTU. So on top of that, I do eight weeks of CTU, but not most nephrologists won't do eight weeks of CTU. Um, so, so yeah, so it, it's quite variable. You know, those inpatient weeks will be, you know, fairly heavy, you know, somewhat 
more stress inducing than your office, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and then you work the weekend and you often do overnight call during that week for a couple of nights. So you might have to come in at two o'clock in the morning and dialyze someone urgently, things like that. Whereas in your office weeks, you're generally not having to do a lot of those things. You're just in the office or the clinic, right? And you get the weekend off usually. So, um, but it depends on the size, like all these things, like whatever people decide, it's kind of variable. It depends on the size of the group, depends on the hospital and their needs. Um, there are nephrologists in community hospitals where they, they actually need to help and do some general internal medicine at the same time, right? Because some of these smaller hospitals, they don't have enough general internists. So then they have like a nephrologist, they have a few other specialists. And so then the specialists combine together and they all do general internal medicine to help out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does sometimes depend where you are um, in how your job looks like. Um, but um but yeah, that would be a basic, those would be the different aspects of a job for a nephrologist. Thanks for outlining that. That's really helpful, actually. And it seems like, like you said, very dictated depending on where you work. Um, mm-hmm. But also, as you mentioned, really important to know that you like the bread and butter for that as well. And I think earlier you mentioned um, that nephrologists also do some procedures, at least on a limited basis. What are some of those procedures that you're doing? Uh, yeah, so all of us need to be able to put in an urgent dialysis line. And so that would probably be the main procedure that all of us have to do as a core um, is, you know, let's say you get called and someone has drank windshield wiper fluid in the emergency department, they need urgent, urgent dialysis, you would have to put in either a femoral or, or uh, internal jugular dialysis catheter um, so that they could get dialysis within, you know, an hour or two, you know, right away. Um, so that's the main procedure we do. Um, there are some places where nephrologists put in what's called a perm cath, which is a more permanent dialysis line. Um, but now in most places, radiology has taken that over. Um, and then in our group and in other groups, some, uh, some nephrologists put in peritoneal dialysis catheters. So it's a kind of uh, abdominal bedside procedure where you put in a peritoneal dialysis catheter right into their belly. So I don't do that, but, um, but probably about how like, 40% of our group have trained to do that. And so that would be the other main procedure I would say we would do. Yeah. So those are the main procedures for a nephrologist. I think in one province they used to do kidney biopsies, but now that's basically radiology now. Mm-hmm. So um, so it's not a ton of procedures, I would say, but just, I don't know, for some people that's enough, right? One procedure yeah. that you have to do in a, yeah. So it's nice mm-hmm. to be able to do a procedure. I, I certainly enjoy them, though it's kind of... Mm-hmm. Procedure is always stressful because you want to you want to get it right. So yeah. and there's always there's always some unpredictability with it. So yeah, thanks for outlining that as well. Um, and then as far as you know, now that you've kind of gone through your career, um, what have you found to be like the most challenging aspect of the job, or maybe something that's you know you still you know struggle with or find difficult? It's mm, interesting. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things I was going to say was the other thing that people, the other thing people need to think about is, is the longitudinal relationship with patients and how that, that occurs. Right. And so, um, I think that, um, certain disciplines in medicine, not just internal medicine, they have longitudinal care and some don't. Right. And people have to think about whether they like that or not. Right. I always think about, you know, you know, I really liked emergency to a certain degree when I was a, a, a student, but I always found myself thinking, 
well, what actually happened to that patient that I sent, mm-hmm. you know, to CTU, right? And I was like, I, I wonder if I like, and, I, you know, and so I think with internal medicine, there's the opportunity to follow them longitudinally, right? But different specialties have a different relationship. And I would say one of the things with nephrology for sure is that those patients become very entwined with the nephrologist, right? If you have chronic kidney disease, you probably have chronic kidney disease for the for the rest of your life, right? And so you're seeing your nephrologist on a regular basis. So, I mean, I have patients that I've known now for 20 years that I've, you know, initially diagnosed them, treated them for many for a long time, gotten them a kidney transplant. Now I see them in transplant clinic, right? And in some ways that's very nice. In some ways it's tough, right? Because you they rely on you a lot, so there's a lot of pressure and also the fundamental reality is, is, is patients will die. Right. Um, and, and it is, it is hard for people. Um, and I think one of the things is, yeah, to look after someone for 10, 15 years and then have them pass on, you know, and get to know their family even and them mm-hmm. so well. And, and, and then, you know, it's kind of sad. Right. And so, you know, I, I look at, you know, I started in 2004 and, um, there, there is almost, no patient apart from getting a transplant in that dialysis unit that's that's still alive right um because if you don't get a transplant then generally you don't stay on dialysis for 19 years right something it's not the kidney part like you could probably die but you know other things happen in their health and then they they pass on right so so that process of grieving you know for some people you know i still find it challenging right because i get very close to my patients Mm -hmm. um you know one of the other aspects that that people have to think about is is the call right (laughs) and um you know now as i've gotten older you know you realize when some people tell you you know you got to think about that that aspect Mm -hmm. of things right because when you're when you're a student and a resident and presumably if you're um if you did it reasonably early on in your life you know you have a lot of energy you know (laughs) um, and you're able to kind of deal with the call nights and stuff but Mm -hmm. i but you know, I think most of us will say, you know, as you get older, it gets tougher to recover. It gets mm-hmm. tougher to recover from not having a good night's sleep, right? It gets tougher to recover from working seven days in a row, right? And and, and things like that. So I think people do need to consider um, not just what they enjoy and what they like now, but like, will they actually enjoy and like it and have the energy to do it when they're like 50, right? Mm-hmm. Um and it's hard it's so hard to do that right how do you extrapolate how you're going to be <laughs> um but i do tell people you know if if i were to make a general statement about things i would say there's two general statements i always make to people i i say you need to understand yourself and you need to be honest with yourself and kind of do like iterative, iterative evaluations on a regular basis right every time you do a rotation every time you do something in medicine you need to ask yourself like oh how did i feel about that did i like that did i not like that right and and the part you have to be honest with yourself too is like you know are you a high energy person or low energy person right are you a how do you deal with stress you know are you good Mm -hmm. with stress or you're not good with stress how do you deal with multitasking do you like multi no one likes multitasking i guess Mm -hmm. but you know I, i think you know not everyone is the same and i think people have to understand that and they sometimes try and compare themselves to a gold standard of like you know i find this in traumas and they see you know the resident who can do it all right and they try and say oh i you know 
I need to be like that resident. And I'm like, well, that that's not that's not always the case, right? You have to understand who you are and and don't worry about as much what other people are doing, right? I mean, it's funny. Um, if you take athletes, right, or you just take people and you put them in a hundred meter race and you just tell them to run, someone's going to win. And people will be like, oh yeah, that's because that person's faster, right? Um, but people accept that, right? And, and similarly in medicine, you know, some people are better at some skills and some people are not as good at other skills. Some people don't need as much sleep for whatever reason. Some people need more sleep, right? Some people, you know, when things are coming in all directions, you can see they get really stressed and some people they can remain calm, right? And multitask, right? And I think it's important for people to be honest with themselves and say, you know, like, if you are a person who needs nine hours of sleep and you're, you know, you're wrecked the next day after a call night, it's probably not a great idea to choose like ICU or something, right? Because mm-hmm. like, that's going to be a significant portion of your career for the rest of your life, right? You would, you know, you would, you would think maybe something with less call, you know, maybe more regular hours where you can kind of have a good night's sleep and stuff would be a more logical choice, right? As opposed to if you're a super high energy person and that, that excites you and you, you know, and you don't have as much problems post call and things like that, then maybe that you're more, you know, um, that's kind of what I feel people should do when they go through these things, right? Is try and kind of assess themselves, right? And be honest about, you know, what their capabilities are. I mean, you might like something, but like, it may not be conducive to like having good balance in your life, um, Mm -hmm. depending on what you can accomplish, right? And, And the other thing that's a fundamental reality is like, most things do become fairly routine after a while, right? So, um, nothing is as exciting as when you've done it for the first, you know, three to 10 times. Right. Um, but I would say like even nephrology practice, there, there are cases that really, you know, make you think really hard and they, and they're really interesting and they're unusual, but you know, probably 90% of what I see, like it's pretty routine. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I've seen it before. I know how to deal with it. I know how to do it. And so, um, for some people, that's fine. But, you know, for some people, then they have to look for other things. So you'll see people like, you know, for example, I do some administration and teaching, and I really enjoy that. It's kind of a different thing that is not my usual day to day, right? I mean, part of the reason I still do CTU is because it's still a, it's still kind of a different challenge, right? Like, with CTU, you don't know what's going to walk through the door. You don't know what the problem is going to be and you have to kind of solve it. Right. And so, and then you have all these, you know, residents and medical students around that you're teaching and it's a lot of fun. Right. So I, I try and do more, do some CTU still um, because, you know, it's something different. Right. And so, you know, people do have to realize that a lot of your job, because you get so presumably you get quite good at it after a while, right? Because you're doing it over and over and over again. It does become a bit routine. Yeah, that's that's some great wisdom advice there. Like you said, it's hard to predict what you'll need, you know, in 30 years, let's say, but looking internally is probably more helpful than the comparison that I think a lot of us do. A lot, a lot of people do it. And, you know, like mm-hmm. I... Uh, I would say the thing is, even for myself, it was it, it was it was hard to predict what I wanted until certain things happened in my life, right? Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, you know, I was probably by all intents and purposes, if if people would describe me back in the day, I was I was pretty crazy. 
So, you know, like I, I, I really had this goal to be like a high level academic, you know, nephrologist who was going to get a PhD and I was going to do tons of research and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And that was going to be my path. And so I, you know, I, I did lots of research projects. I worked super hard and, you know, um, and, and I thought, this is what I'm going to do. I actually was thinking of going to Harvard and doing a transplant fellowship and coming back. And I basically wanted to be my mentor, you know, Dr. Lansford. <laughs> you know, I, I still idolize him to this day, and that's who I wanted to be. Um, but the, the most, I think, the key thing that happened to me is I actually had my first daughter when I was in third year residency. Um, and, uh, and that changed my perspective actually quite profoundly. Mm -hmm. Um, because before it was my wife and I, and we had a mission and, you know, we worked, you know, and she had her speech pathology job and I was doing my thing and it was like, okay, this is our goal. And then suddenly you, you have this baby, right. And you have this child, that's your child. And you're like, okay, well, like maybe I don't, you know, I've got to think about like how that's going to work, right? Like what kind of dad do I want to be? How much medicine do I want to do? And, and it's not that that the path that I originally had chosen was necessarily going to be hard to do that. But, you know, then you start to think about, you know, extra years of training and how that's going to impact your family. And then, you know, if you get a transplant job for me, it was like, there's only a few places you can work and then do we want to move? And, you know, all those things I never thought about, right? Like once you have that, you know, that kind of, it changes your perspective. And so for me, one of the things I, I started to think about was, yeah, like where would I want to settle down? You know, where would I want to practice? You know, our family's all in British Columbia. So like, I really wanted to stay in British Columbia. So what are, what are other opportunities and things like that? And I don't know if I would have thought about that necessarily if I didn't have that life-changing moment. And, um, and so I think that um, it is, yeah, so even even as I'm telling people to try and extrapolate, it is easier said than done until you actually yeah. go through it. Um, but I would tell people to to think about those things if you can, right? And then maybe talk to people and, and, and actually ask them, like, how do you integrate, like, being a parent and being a teacher and being a clinician and being a, re you know, like, you can't do, what I learned is you can't do everything. So, you, you know, you kind of have to prioritize a few things, right? And so... You know, I I was lucky enough to get a job opportunity where I didn't have to do two more years of training, right? And it was in British Columbia and it paid really well and we could buy a house and settle down. And it didn't have a lot of research, but it had a lot of teaching and I liked teaching a lot. So, um, so and I kind of pivoted like into kind of more administration and like... Mm. Um, once again, I, I kind of saw the, the wheels of research being... Um, somewhat slow, right? Like you have to kind of, you know, have a project, write it up, get a grant or get a proposal, then do the project for a few years and then, you know, see what the outcomes are, analyze it and then publish it, right? And so you're looking at kind of um, several years of in the making, right? And, and don't get me wrong, like I, I research is so fundamentally important that I think the people who want to do it and the people who do it, like we owe a huge debt to them. But like for me, I, I kind of moved into more medical administration because then I saw a problem. Like, for example, patients were not getting the kind of care that they needed. And then I can kind of say, OK, how do we fix that problem? Right. And um, and so, you know, that's how I decided to kind of, you know, put my extra energy into outside of the actual nephrology care.
right? So, um, so yeah, so everyone is different. So I try mm -hmm. and encourage people to, to really just kind of think about experiences, think about life and talk to as many people as possible, right? Mm -hmm. Ask them what they like about their job, ask them what they do, try and be inquisitive and curious. And I think it's the rare person who doesn't want to talk to you guys at all, right? <laughs> Most people are very happy at the right time, right? You know, ask them if they have time or if they have time for a coffee or, you know, a time at the end of the day or whenever it's convenient for them. And then, you know, have a conversation, right? Um, I always tell people like, if you're getting advice and, and you have the right mentors, they should be trying to get to know you to understand what you want, right? Not telling you what to do, right? And and that's that's often what I do when I sit down with students and residents. I'm just like, just tell me about yourself and tell me about what you like. And, and then I can try and help you make a decision. And it's funny, you know, I think people always assume I'm gonna try and tell them to do nephrology and internal medicine, but that's not true, right? Like I've had students who tell me, you know, I like family practice and internal medicine equally, right? And I tell them, well, then you should probably do family practice <laughs> because, you know, it's only two years of training instead of like five. Um, there's so many jobs in, in family practice and we need great family doctors. So if you enjoy family practice, you know, you can get done in two years. Um, you can start working and, you know, open your practice or work as a hospitalist and then you can get on with your life and do the other stuff that's, you know, really fun, right? So, um, so I don't necessarily like try and tell people to do what I do, right? The key is to, is to kind of look at what, what they're interested in and just help them kind of sort it out or at least know how to think about it, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Sometimes you need like that outside perspective to help guide you a little bit, ask the right questions and, and know that about yourself. Um, that's all really great advice too, because you're certainly not the first person I've heard say, you know, some kind of life event changes their perspective on, on what they were going through. And I think we just have to remember it's like a career. So it's going to change as things go on. Um, and I didn't know if there was anything like last words that you wanted to mention or bring up about nephrology or advice or anything like that. There's so much advice, right? It just depends. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, uh, I, I would tell people that it really is, um, there is a lot of flexibility, right? In medicine. And even if you think that like the choice that you've made initially if it doesn't pan out, there's so many ways to pivot actually. And I've seen people do that throughout their career. I've seen them move from hospital to a different hospital, from outpatient practice to inpatient, you know, stuff like that. And so don't feel, I would tell people, don't feel like you're making these decisions that are, you know, never changeable in your life, right? There's so much flexibility in medicine. Um, so, you know, generally if someone is just a good person, you know, like they, they work hard, that's the other thing I would tell people, like, it's, it's really simple at the end of the day, right? It's, you know, be a good person, be a good colleague, care about your patients, and, and, and work hard, right? And be responsible. And those are the people that, you know, people want to take on as trainees. Those are the people that you want to hire as people in the future and stuff. And if you do that well, I, I think things generally work out really well for people. And um, I think that, uh, for those people who are in medical school and medicine and stuff like that, like it's a great job, right? I always tell people like, 
there is a fair amount of stress and stuff like that, especially during training. But, you know, there is a light at the end of the tunnel and, you know, you get done your training and you get your job. And, you know, I always tell people like, like what kind of job are you kind of your own boss, right? Because generally you are like, even though I have a group that I work with and like we have to share the call and stuff, it's, you know, we are generally independent people, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, you can't really get fired unless you really do something egregious, right? How many people can say they can never get fired as long as you Mm -hmm. just do a good job, right? Like some people can get fired even if they are doing a good job in a corporation Mm -hmm. and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. right? And, And you're paid really well and there's a general amount of flexibility. You know, I've been able to reduce my office when I want to coach my kids in basketball on certain months of the year and, mm-hmm. and things like that. And so, you know, and, and I kind of decide that, not anyone else. So I just have to get a colleague to maybe cover me sometimes, you know, on a on an evening, but I'll, I'll pay them back down the road. So I just, I, I think it's great. Yeah. And I think people like, it's hard to see that you know, because it is a grind, you know, medical yeah. school residency where you're really working hard and putting in a lot of hours. And so, uh, you know, I just want to reassure people that that all the effort is worth it at the end of the day. Like you come out of it and and it's a good life. It's a great life, actually. I'm, you know, I I still get up every day and I'm lucky enough to, um, to say that I, I don't think I've ever gotten up and been like, oh, I don't really want to go to work today. You know, mm-hmm. I, 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 I generally have been quite happy to go to work. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of my hope is that people do find something that they're passionate about and then, so they enjoy what, what they do. Right. So that's such a great note to end on. That's very uplifting and, um, encouraging, I think too. So that'll, that'll be great for everyone to hear also. And thank you so much again for your time and, and for just so much advice and, and great words of wisdom in this, in this conversation. No problem. And and hopefully I'll see some of the listeners out at Royal Columbian at some point uh, doing their training. So I look forward to it. For more episodes of Metamorphosis, look for us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Take care and catch you on the next one. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 